Welcome students of Seneca. You're probably listening to this podcast because you're not really sure how tomorrow's going to go and you just want a bit of comfort. So that's why I'm here to provide you just um, a few facts just to make sure that you go in feeling as prepared as you possibly can before your A-level paper one history exam. Um, and I should just make sure that everyone knows that this podcast is about the Tudors um, from the years between 1485 to 1603. So if you're not studying that, you know, turn off now because there's no point and you should be focusing on your own paper. So the purpose of this podcast is just to give you some peace of mind and to feel as prepared as possible when you enter that exam hall tomorrow. But first and foremost, I want to stress that you're all going to smash it and you need to feel confident when going in because that's the most important thing. Um, You need to feel like it's a battle and you're ready to take it on head on. And if you need some motivation, just think about the amazing summer you're going to have after this. It's going to be fantastic. Right, so let's jump into it. I'm going to just focus on a few um, topics today. The first being um, Henry VII and his consolidation of power. So what were Henry VII's aims? When Henry VII took the throne in 1485, he could not have known that he would succeed. The fear of losing his throne to unreconciled Yorkists explained many of his actions. His overarching aim was to end the political instability of the War of the Roses. So what was Henry VII's character like? He was generally very respected, efficient, intelligent and shrewd. However, that said, he was not exactly popular. He also developed a reputation for greed over the course of his reign. So, just to recap, when did Henry VII become king? That was following the Battle of Bosworth, which was the year. I'm just going to give you a second so you can think about it. Correct, it is 1485. I hope you all got that. Henry VII understood court politics, and he did not trust anyone outside of a small group of people. His closest confidants included Margaret Beaufort, his mother, Jasper Tudor, the Earl of Oxford, John Morton, and Richard Fox. Henry also loved his wife, the Elizabeth of York, but he gave her no political influence. And this is really to do with her um, background and where she came from. Given her name of York, she was obviously descended from the Yorkist line who were the Lancastrians' enemy during the War of the Roses. So his marriage was a political alliance, but he was always a bit sceptical of people trying to manipulate his wife. So firstly, Henry had to take several steps to consolidate his hold over the English throne. This included having control over his nobility. The Wars of the Roses had been caused by over-mighty nobles and a weak king. He, therefore, needed to strengthen his control over England. So to legitimate his reign, Henry VII dated his reign to the 21st of August, 1485. And this is really important because this was the day before the Battle of Bosworth. So therefore, he could declare all Yorkists traitors. The second step to legitimising his reign was to marry Elizabeth of York in 1486. And as we discussed earlier, this is important because he wanted to unite two warring families. Henry VII also was crowned before convening his first parliament, and this was to ensure that his authority did not rely on parliamentary consent.
So just to recap, so we all know about how Henry legitimised his rule. He dated his reign to the day before the Battle of Bosworth, and this mean, meant he could try all of the Yorkists for treason for fighting against him. And to secure an alliance with the Yorkist line, he married Elizabeth of York, and that was in 1486. And he was crowned before convening his first parliament, so this was to ensure that his rule was not dependent um, or contingent on parliamentary support. Great, so that is our quick run-through of Henry VII consolidating his power. We're going to skip forward several decades now and head on to Elizabeth I, and in particular her governance. So, firstly, let's talk about who were Elizabeth I's courtiers from the gentry. And we should remember that gentry is a kind of social strata, um, and they fall underneath the nobility, but above, say, merchants and yeomen. So from the gentry, Elizabeth's courtiers included Sir William Cecil, and that was before he became Lord Burley, Sir Christopher Hatton, Sir Walter Raleigh, and Sir Francis Walsingham. Walsingham being in charge of the spy ring, which was really important for uncovering the Catholic plots later in Elizabeth I's reign. And then Elizabeth also had courtiers from the nobility, including Robert Dudley and the Earls of Sussex and the Earl of Essex. The Earl of Essex having a bit of a sticky end with Elizabeth due to his failed rebellion in 1601. So, Neil was a historian and he proposed the Puritan choir thesis. And he used this to explain the relations between Elizabeth I and Parliament. Having a bit of historiography could really take your answer to the next level in your exam. So I'd encourage you to do so. Just name dropping Neil would be fantastic. And his argument is basically that Parliament had increasing power over the course of Elizabeth I's reign and were able to challenge her decisions. And he also uses this as the roots to the English Civil War in the 17th century. Um, but historians such as Elton have revised Neil's claims and he's argued that Parliament actually was driven by conciliatory politics. And this is supported by the fact that Elizabeth actually only convened Parliament um, 13 times during her reign. So it's not really a lot. And this means that we can argue it didn't have significant power. So rather than using Parliament, Elizabeth I deliberately chose to govern primarily through the Privy Council. And this was led by Cecil. As we know from Henry VIII's reign, the regions could be very problematic for and threatening to the monarch's reign. So the Council of the North, which was established um, by Elizabeth I's grandfather, Henry VII, continued to be a prominent institution. And from 1572, the Council of the North was led by the Earl of Huntingdon. And next, we're going to talk about um, the image which Elizabeth cultivated by not marrying, and that was her image as the Virgin Queen. And that's really important because she used her impregnable body to be a symbol of the impregnable body politic. So there were some very strong elements of symbolism there. And that is very much seen in portraiture of the period. So... If we just recap what we spoke about with historiography, if I asked which historian proposed the Puritan choir thesis, um, I'll let you give one second to write it down or if the name pops into your head, um, the answer was Neil. And to reiterate, just dropping that in would be fantastic. 
So, as we know, Elizabeth was courted by several suitors, the last of which was the Duke of Anjou. And as we know, the response to the Duke of Anjou was incredibly mixed because he was a Catholic, so Elizabeth faced a lot of pressure to not marry him, and a lot of rumours going around, some saying that Cecil himself sparked them. And if we talk about Elizabeth and which body she used to primarily govern England, that was the Privy Council, um, deliberately not Parliament. And given that some courtiers were trying to lobby the Queen to not marry the Duke of Anjou, a key example of this is the Civ portraits. Uh, I'd, it'd be fantastic if you could just Google them and you could have a look at them. They're also on the Seneca website if you're interested. But essentially, the sieve um, symbolises virginity. So that's why they pressure and lobby Elizabeth to not marry, so she can retain her image as the Virgin Queen. Parliament also pressured Elizabeth over the succession issue and naming someone to succeed her as the monarch of England. She deliberately did not do this because it might have weakened her position. So to stop Parliament discussing it, she invoked her royal prerogative. And she did this over several issues during her reign. So if we talk about Elizabeth I's last suitor, this was the Duke of Anjou. And she used to affectionately call him her little frog. So we know that Elizabeth deliberately did not um, acquiesce to Parliament's pressure to name a successor and to shut them up, she invoked her royal prerogative. Fantastic. So that is our quick run through of Elizabeth I's governance done. I'm now just going to do some quick fire questions for you. Um, so either get a piece of paper or just try and answer them as we go. I'll give you a little break to think of the answer. But these are going to cover anything about Elizabeth I's reign. So it's not necessarily something I've covered so far. But this should keep you on your toes and get those brain cells going. So question number one. Which of the following features are um, aspects of England's relationship with the Netherlands between 1581 and 1587? So I'm going to read out several examples and two of them are going to be true. So I would like you to tell me which they are. So option number one, England and the Dutch signed the Treaty of Nonsuch in 1585. Option number two, England invaded Spain in 1588. Option number three, England offered financial support in 1581 to the Dutch rebels. Next option, the English military trained Dutch rebels. And finally, England and the Dutch signed the Treaty of Antwerp in 1587. So which of those two are correct? The answers are England and the Dutch signed the Treaty of Nonsuch in 1585 and England offered financial support in 1581. Next, we're going to talk about the issues of social problems and poverty in Elizabethan England. So, which of the following were measures the Elizabethan government took to address poverty? Again, I'm going to read out some options, and you need to tell me which one's right. So, firstly, the government established a basic benefits system. Next, the government passed the Act of Setting the Poor on Work, Thirdly, the government passed a poor law in 1572. Fourthly, the government passed a poor law in 1583. Or finally, the government passed the Act of Setting the Poor on Apprenticeships. So two of them are right, and the answer is 
I hope you've all got this, it's that the government passed the act of setting the poor on work and that the government also passed a poor law in 1572. Next, we're going to explore the globe with Sir Walter Raleigh and talk about his colony in Virginia and more specifically the lost colony and explaining why it failed. So I'm going to give you some options about why it failed and you need to tell me which ones are right. So either there were no women in the colony and this is why it failed. Did the colony fail because the residents were destroyed by disease? Did the colonists lack supplies to set up a colony? Did the colonists want to expand too quickly? Or finally, did the colonists not have the right skill sets to establish a colony? So two of those are right and the answers are, I hope you've got these, the colonists lacked supplies to set up a colony was option one and number two, they did not have the suitable skill set to establish a colony. Also I just want you to know that if you've got them wrong don't worry it's going to be okay just like a last minute crown the night before and have confidence so it's going to be okay. Right to make sure you're all feeling you know, phenomenal, you're going to smash it. Also, it's going to be done so soon, who cares? I've got a special stress buster bit as well. Um, So some important facts, which I want to stress to you so much is, I hope that you've not revived so hard that you sacrificed your mental health. That is so important. And you should always make sure that you take time to check in on yourself and how you're feeling. Make sure you have space to relax. You should spend time with your friends. Make sure you eat properly. I'd always recommend doing some exercise, whether that be just going for a walk or doing a bit of yoga or whatever it is that floats your boat. Make sure you just get that blood pumping and also a bit of headspace away from work. Um, If you're feeling stressed, always talk to someone Um, whether it's a friend who is appreciating exactly what you're going through and sympathizing with that or maybe it's um, someone who's your your parent or a teacher Um, and then in terms of the day tomorrow make sure you eat well before have a good breakfast go in like I said before feeling super confident you know fake it till you make it even you have to go in and just really back yourself and finally think about that feeling of when your exams will be done what are you going to do which parties are you going to go to where are you going to go on your holiday in the summer think about it all and it's going to happen so incredibly soon so that's it i hope you feel a bit more confident about your exam tomorrow it's going to be great and i'd really encourage you to come back again we're going to try and do these podcasts for future papers as well and also in a variety of subjects so goodbye Good luck for your exams. We're going to be releasing night before podcasts before every exam. And if you head on over to YouTube on every weekday, we are going to be doing live streams at 4.45 and 5.30. So make sure you subscribe. And while you're at it, rate us five stars. We're amazing. (laughs) Good luck.